Thank you for checking out this sermon video here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. You are joining us for our series called Radical Red Letters, Kingdom Living in a Chaotic Land. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text new to hope to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form for you to fill out so we can get to know you better. Once again, thank you for joining us today and enjoy the sermon. What comes to your mind when you hear the word radical? The word radical, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's an adjective defined like this. It's a way of doing something that is new and very different from usual. That's what the word radical means. So here's a question based on that definition. Are you radical? Or is the life that you are living in Christ just like everybody else? As the church, we are currently studying together through a section of Scripture called the Beatitudes. And the reason I bring that word radical to the forefront is because we gave you a definition of what the Beatitudes are when we launched into this series together that we've called Radical Red Letters, Kingdom Living in the Midst of a Chaotic World. We gave you a definition of these Beatitudes, and I want to put it back up here on the screen because we define them as eight radical. Now think about our definition. The definition of radical is a way of life that is new and very different. What Jesus was declaring here was a way of living. It's actually eight declarations of kingdom living. He's called us to kingdom living. And this kingdom lifestyle is very different and new from the way of life in the world. But it results in contentment in the midst of the chaos. So I want us to continue on our journey through Matthew chapter 5 by opening your Bible. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to look at the next of these radical declarations of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse number 1. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... Here's the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Then the one we looked at last weekend. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And then where we want to focus this weekend. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Radical declarations, poor in spirit, mourning, gentleness, 
and now he comes to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And I want to treat this verse the same way we've treated all of them. I want to understand what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness and then give some practical application for what it looks like for you and I to live that out in the midst of the chaos of the world that we're living in today. So here's question number one. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Now, to understand that question, we need to look at it in two distinct parts. Number one, what does Jesus mean when he uses the words hunger and thirst? Hunger and thirst, we use a lot as words, but in reality, in our culture in America, we don't often really experience hunger or thirst. The phrase, I'm hungry. Now, Total transparency, I probably use that phrase 8, 10, 12 times a day, right? But really experiencing hunger is another reality altogether. I was reminded of that this week. Our, our staff team here at Hope Church, Monday and Tuesday, did two days of an all-staff meeting, uh, having a conversation about deepening our unity in the midst of cultural diversity as a fellowship. So on Tuesday, as a part of that all-staff meeting, just leading this conversation among our staff team, we had lunch brought in for our staff. And the lunch arrived 45 minutes late and I begin to hear people on our staff and I'm all the while I'm, I've been preparing this sermon all week and I'm listening to them through the filter of hungering 45 minutes late and I began to hear things like man I'm hungry I heard things like man I'm starving I even heard somebody say I might chew my arm off when we use the phrase I'm hungry Hunger in our culture is often when our regularly scheduled food is slightly delayed. I'm hungry. Thirsty. Thirst is what we experience in Las Vegas in July when we walk from the parking lot to the building that we've just parked in front of, right? Oh, I'm dying of thirst. Hungering. And thirsting. But the words that Jesus uses here are much more specific than the vague reality that we speak of when we use the words hunger and thirst. Greek scholar William Barclay, I've referenced him before, I don't always agree with his theological conclusions, but his understanding of the Greek language is expertise. And listen to what he says about these two words. The hunger which this beatitude describes is not genteel hunger, which could be satisfied with a mid-morning snack. The thirst of which he speaks is no thirst which could be quenched with a cup of coffee or an iced drink. It is the hunger of a man who is starving for food and of a man who will die unless he drinks. The word Jesus uses for hunger is a word that describes desperate hunger. It means to be famished or starved. To give you an idea of this, it's the same word used to describe Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2. Look at this verse of scripture. The Bible says about Jesus, and after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he became, say it out loud, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine 
40 days without food? I mean, I had an experience this week where we went 40 minutes and there was almost panic setting in. But we're talking 40 days. Medical experts say if you go two to three days without food, which many have done for fasts and other purposes that we've been on, if you go two to three days without food, the body can begin to experience intense hunger pains. But when you get beyond that, the body begins to hibernate and this pain begins to dissipate as you go several days, a week, two weeks. But the medical community says after several weeks, around the 40-day mark, you experience extreme hunger. Some in the medical community refer to it as death hunger. The body begins to say, if I don't eat, I'm about to die. It's so serious that the body will literally begin to eat itself. The body will begin to consume muscle and vital organs simply to survive. At this point in hunger, which is the word that described Jesus here, 40 days, no food. At this point, listen, nothing else matters. Another way to say it is this. At that point, everything else is unnecessary. Stuff that mattered a few days ago, a week ago, it doesn't matter anymore. The only thing that matters now is hunger. The same idea with the word thirst. The Greek word that Jesus uses here refers to the severest form of being without water. It's also used in Scripture to describe Jesus. You know when? John chapter 19, verse 28, after this, <laughs> that's a loaded phrase, this was Jesus being arrested, run all night long through a series of mock trials, having, having a crown of thorns pressed down into his head so that blood began to flow, having his back flogged with a cat of nine tails so that the flesh was literally ripped from his back and he was bleeding openly to death, and then having to carry a cross out up onto a hillside and having been nailed to that cross, crucified, hanging in the hot sun for hours. The Bible says, after all of this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. It's a word that describes a thirst unlike anything any one of us have probably ever experienced. It's a level of dehydration and longing for liquid. Jesus chooses these two words that describe radical, human, God-given desire. The combination of these words, hunger and thirst, describe a deep, 
and continuous longing for something that is all-encompassing. Jesus is not here describing a casual desire. He's not describing a momentary feeling. He's not describing an emotional whim. The terms that he chooses describe a passionate, continuous yearning, an all-consuming passion. Then the second part. What are we to hunger and thirst for? What did the text say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Say it out loud. Righteousness. Righteousness. I mean, before we even unpack it, when you hear the words, the terms that Jesus chooses, deeply convicting in our soul is the reality that we should have an all-consuming, nothing else matters, passionate longing for righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, righteousness can only be defined in relationship to God himself because he alone is righteous. The word righteousness could be defined as God's own perfection in every attribute, every behavior, and every word. It is the divine attribute of God that describes God as always acting in a way that is consistent with his own character. It means God is always right. God is right in action. God is right in word. God is right in deed. God is right in character. God is always right. The psalmist expresses this in two different verses. I'll show you Psalm 119, verse 137 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Psalm 145, verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Here's the bottom line. God is the standard of that which is right and any deviation from him and his standard is wrong. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. God himself is the standard of that which is right. And any deviation from him is wrong. It doesn't matter what's popular. It doesn't matter what culture says. It doesn't matter what government says. It doesn't matter what cable news says. God and God alone is right. And anything that deviates from him is wrong. Righteousness is who God is, and righteousness is seen in that which conforms to his character. To try and help us understand the depth of righteousness, I want to help you see it from some different dimensions. I'm going to give you four dimensions of this righteousness. Number one, righteousness is who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh. Amen? Jesus is not a man who became God. 
Jesus is not half man and half God. Jesus is God who became man and was God and man at the same time. Jesus is 100% God as a human being, as a human being. Since Jesus is God in the flesh, Jesus is absolute righteousness revealed in humanity. Meaning this, every action, every word, every reaction, every emotion of Jesus, Jesus was perfection. Jesus was righteousness in action. Everything he did was right. He is the plumb line of righteousness in humanity. But even more so, he embodied righteousness. Four times in the New Testament. We won't look them up tonight, but I'll give them to you. Acts 3.14, Acts 7.52, Acts 22.14, and 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. In all four of those references, Jesus is given the title, The Righteous One. He was the embodiment of righteousness. Righteousness is who Jesus is. Second dimension of righteousness. Righteousness is who, <laughs> get this, I am in Jesus. Listen, when we realize the righteousness of God, when we compare ourselves to the plumb line of God's righteousness, we become aware of just how unrighteous we are as human beings. Amen? I mean, when we look at Jesus in the New Testament, when we look at God in Scripture, and we see the righteousness and the perfection of God, and we measure ourselves up against that righteousness, we come to the conclusion that Romans chapter chapter 3 and verse 10 is absolutely true. Listen what it says. There is none righteous. What does it say? Not even one. In comparison to the righteousness of God, none of us are righteous. And even that in us that appears righteous, the Old Testament says, even our righteousness compared to him is filthy rags. And here's the lie of religion. Religion is man's attempt to restore his own righteousness before God through human effort. Works, morality, rituals, practices... Religion is man's attempt recognizing God is righteous and I'm unrighteous. Religion says, here's what you need to do. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to practice this. You need to accept this. You need to do this work. And if you do all of that, then you can hopefully someday measure up to an acceptable standard of righteousness. But here's the bottom line. No matter how hard we try, we cannot attain perfection. Amen? That's a good place for everybody to say amen. No matter how hard we try, we cannot obtain perfection. And therein lies the beauty of the gospel. I can't wait to tell you what he did on our behalf. Because we could not earn righteousness on our own. Guess what God did? God did for us what we could not do on our own. Let me show it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Bible says, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who what? Knew no sin. You know what that means? Righteous. He's the righteous one. He knew no sin. To do what? To be sin on our behalf? Jesus, the righteous one, 
stepped in the gap for you and me and he took all of our unrighteousness on himself and he became sin for us. And on the cross, Jesus died. And then he rose again from the dead as a testimony that God accepted his sacrifice. And look what it says. So that, don't miss this, we might become the what? But it gets better. The righteousness of who? Oh, how good is that? Listen, I didn't just get my righteousness restored. I don't just have Vance's best righteousness. I don't even have Adam's best righteousness. Because of Jesus, I've been given the very righteousness of God himself. You say, did you earn that? Absolutely not. Do I deserve that? No way. But because of Christ, I am righteous. Here's what that means. At the moment of salvation, I experienced his righteousness. That means right now, I stand, and if you've come to Christ, you stand before God, perfectly conformed to his standard of righteousness. Here's what that means. After you've been in heaven for 10,000 years, you won't be any more righteous before God than you are right now. You know why? Because when he sees you, he sees his righteousness. How'd we get in on that? By faith. I recognized my unrighteousness by faith. I turned and believed on Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrendered the control of my life to him. And the great exchange is he took all of my unrighteousness and he clothed me in his righteousness. Righteousness is who Jesus is. And now righteousness is who I am because of Jesus. Number three, we're going somewhere with this, so hang on. Righteousness is who I am becoming in Jesus. You see, what is true about me positionally, I am righteous, is being produced in my life practically, I am becoming righteous. That's why Paul writes to a young man that he was discipling named Timothy. And listen what he said to Timothy. But flee these things. Talking about the works of the flesh and the old man. Flee these things, you man of God. And get this, pursue what? Now hang on a second. I thought, Pastor, you just said, because of Jesus... I am righteous. Isn't that true? Yes, that's true. Isn't that what you just said, Pastor? Yes, that's what I just said. Now, Pastor, you said, and Paul said, as a Christian, I'm to pursue righteousness. Which is it? Am I righteous or am I pursuing righteousness? Yes. (laughs) You see, positionally, God has already finished his work in your life. You are judicially declared righteous before God. There's nothing you have to do to earn a right standing with him. But practically, what is true about you positionally, he is working out in your life moment by moment as you grow in intimacy with Christ. As we grow in intimacy with Christ, the positional reality of our righteousness begins to be fleshed out in our lives as a living 
practical righteousness, meaning a life that is conformed to the standard and character of God himself. That's why Paul writes about it. Listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians 2. He said, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And get this, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. You see what's happening? I've already been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God sees me, he sees me as righteous as Jesus. Did I earn that? No. Did I deserve that? No. It's been given to me by grace through faith. Now, as I grow in intimacy with Christ, the position that I have in Christ becomes the practice of Christ in me as he's manifesting the sweet aroma of Jesus through my life. Don't miss this. In every place. Meaning, not just at church, at job, at home, in the neighborhood, at Walmart, in traffic. God help us all. So there's three dimensions. Righteousness is who Jesus is. Righteousness is who I am in Jesus. Righteousness is who I'm becoming in Jesus. Here's the last one. Righteousness is what Jesus is restoring to the world. Our world is broken. I don't care which side of the political aisle you sit on. Our world is broken. Poverty, injustice, abuse, disease, famine, human trafficking, crime, homelessness. Every aspect of brokenness in the world is directly or indirectly the result of our deviation from God's righteousness. Did you hear that again? God didn't design the world to be broken. Every aspect of brokenness in the world is a result either directly or indirectly of our choosing to deviate from God's standard of righteousness. But I got good news. Jesus is on a mission to redeem and restore all things back into conformity with the righteousness of God. I read a verse of scripture this week. I know I've read it before because I've read the entire Bible. I know I've read this before because I've read this book of the Bible multiple times. But I'm telling you, I must have skipped it. I've read over it a thousand times. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But according to his promise. You hear it? He's made us a promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, listen, this is even better than you think it is. That, that where we dwell, 
in the Greek language, there are two words translated dwell. One of them is the word sojourn. It means to dwell, but only temporary. You're just passing through. You're a sojourner. You're here for a minute, but you're not going to stay. This is not that word. This is the word that means to be at home forever. We are holding to a promise that Jesus is on a mission and he is restoring to this world a place where righteousness will be at home. That means one day the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of our God and his righteousness will be at home. Right now, God is at work building his kingdom. As kingdom citizens, we get to be involved in seeing the reality of the kingdom expressed in the brokenness of the world. Here's my conviction. We believe at Hope Church in a principle, a a value called kingdom expansion, that God birthed our church to join in the expansion of his kingdom in Las Vegas, the West, and the world. I believe convictionally when the kingdom of God expands in a city, it means more than more people go to church. I believe convictionally based on scripture, when the kingdom expands in the city, it means the city becomes a better place to live. Because here's what happens. We begin to see glimpses of God's kingdom fleshed out now as as the kingdom of God is made evident in and through our lives. Why? Because as the kingdom comes on earth, as it is in heaven, guess what? Righteousness is experienced. Here's what that means. When the hungry get fed, (laughs) that's righteousness in action. When the traffic get rescued, like we had two girls this week that that were caught up in human trafficking and God by his grace allowed us to connect with them, brought them into our restoration process. This week, those two girls, after having given their lives to Christ, were baptized here at Hope Church. Two girls that were, listen, I'm telling you, that's righteousness in action. When those who've been treated unjustly get justice, That's righteousness in action. When the orphan gets a family, that's righteousness in action. Those are all expressions of the righteousness of God in action. And you and I, as citizens of the kingdom, we get to be glimpses of the righteousness of God that is being restored ultimately in the kingdom. So so let me give you a definition. Here's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Based on all that, then I'm going to bring some application. It's a passionate longing to see the righteousness that is mine in Christ be experienced in my life, my relationships, and the world. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to see the righteousness that is ours in Christ be experienced, yes, in my life, but also in my relationships and also in the world.
So in the minutes that we have left, let me land this by asking the question, what does it look like for me to practically live hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Now I'm going to break my pattern this week and I'm going to give you three spheres of application. I've been doing two, but I I couldn't get this one down to two. We got to go with three. First of all, and with each of these, I'm going to give you a question to, to evaluate your own life. The first application is personally. Am I experiencing the righteousness of Christ in my daily life? Here's another way to ask that. Am I seeing more of Jesus and less of me? Now, don't misunderstand me. I want you to catch this phrase I'm about to say. It's important. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about direction. Did you hear that? Not perfection. Direction. I'm talking about the trajectory of our lives. Because, listen, I understand. I am still not all the man I'm supposed to be. I have struggles. I have weaknesses in my life. Some days I have victory, and some days I have defeat. If you knew some of the struggles in my life, you wouldn't even listen to me. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about direction. Is the trajectory in my life moving towards more of Jesus and less of me? I'm not all the man I'm supposed to be, but thank God I'm not all the man that I used to be. The righteousness that is mine in Christ is being fleshed out in my life. To hunger and thirst for righteousness personally is to have a passionate longing to see Christ's life manifest in and through my life. I'm not just content to go to heaven when I die. I want to say like John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. There's a personal application of this pursuit. This only happens out of the overflow of intimacy with Jesus. So here's the real rub of this question. Am I passionately pursuing intimacy with Christ? If I can't say that I'm passionately pursuing intimacy with Christ daily, I am not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Second application. Relationally. Am I experiencing the righteousness of Christ in my relationships with others? What does that mean? Here's what it means. The righteousness of Christ in me should be experienced in the rightness of relationships around me. Let me say that one more time. The righteousness of Christ in me should be experienced in the rightness of relationships around me. Meaning, if in the relationships around me, all there is is brokenness, maybe what I have is self-righteousness and not Christ's righteousness. Because when Christ is working through me, that which he's done in me, it brings reconciliation to relationships. Is there brokenness in relationships in your life? Now, we're going to talk more about this one in a couple of weeks. In verse 9, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, we could use some of that today. Amen. Peacemakers. 
me show you a verse of scripture, Romans 12, 18. If possible, I love the way it opens. Because, listen, there's some people, it just ain't possible. <laughs> if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Here's what that means. Righteousness in me produces reconciliation towards others the reconciling of broken relationships is righteousness in action Harold Songer said it this way for peace to rule does not mean the absence of disagreements or conflicts in the Christian fellowship listen here's what that means we're going to have disagreements we're going to have conflicts but look what he says peace does not rule out or suppress disagreements it resolves them in love that's righteousness in action If we're not careful, if we're not careful, we're going to walk through this election season and we're going to damage relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ over things that aren't all kingdom things. I understand some of the issues have kingdom implications. We're going to damage relationships that's going to bring brokenness to the church which is the enemy's end game because the church is the vehicle through which the kingdom mission is being accomplished if the enemy can divide the church he can thwart the mission of righteousness being accomplished in the world but when righteousness is experienced with Christ in my life it always reveals itself in reconciling relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ but then number three third application and I'm done missionally missionally and here's the question it's a little bit long but am I leveraging my life and here's what I mean by my life my job my skill my passion where I live work and play so your job your skill your passion where you live work and play that's your life am I leveraging my life so that others may experience the righteousness of Christ in this world as kingdom citizens we should hunger and thirst for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven and hear me clearly no political party owns the market on righteousness I love what my friend Derwin Gray said he said as kingdom citizens we are not of the party of the donkey or the elephant we're the people of the lamb that's who we are We must not live our lives for a political agenda. We must live our lives for a kingdom agenda, which means we celebrate righteousness when we see it and we prophetically call out unrighteousness when we see it. Don't be blinded by political allegiance. We all have a higher calling. Here's what I mean by that. If your political jersey says Democrat, be a kingdom Democrat. What that means is When you see righteousness, celebrate it. But when you see unrighteousness, you prophetically call it out. If if your political jersey says Republican, 
You, don't, you need to be a kingdom Republican, meaning when you see righteousness, you celebrate it. When you see unrighteousness, you need to prophetically call it out. The problem is we blindly put these jerseys on and we just celebrate it all like a football team crossing the goal line for a touchdown. And we have been called to be kingdom citizens, which means we celebrate righteousness, but we equally and prophetically call out unrighteousness. That's who we are as kingdom citizens. And listen, that's what the world is longing to see in us that's different. In the early church, the church lived out a radical faith. And it got the attention of the world. As a matter of fact, it's what led to the explosion of the gospel in the first century. Modern historian Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. It's an important book because Rodney Stark is not a Christian. As a matter of fact, he claims to be agnostic. And yet he wrote a book on the history of Christianity and why it exploded in the first century. I want you to listen to what he said. Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing, get this, new norms. Remember what radical is? It's new and different new norms, and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent urban problems. How about that? The church was the solution to many of the urgent urban problems in the first century world by the power of the Holy Spirit, to cities filled with homeless and the impoverished. Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded family. To cities torn by violent strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered even effective nursing services. You know what that is? righteousness in action and that's who we've been called to be as the church of Jesus Christ and if we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness in our lives in our relationships and in the world the world will go hey 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 hey, they, 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 got, they got something I want what they got let me close with this what's the promise to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness oh, did you hear what he said look at it Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be, say it out loud, full, complete, content. That's the radical way of life we've been called to.